It is now my great pleasure to introduce our speaker for today. Uh, Catherine Kelp Stebbins is an assistant professor and associate director of the Comics and Cartoon Studies program in the Department of English at the University of Oregon. She is an affiliated faculty member of New Media and Culture, as well as Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. Professor Kelp Stebbins' scholarly interests include comics and cartoon studies, colonial, settler colonial and post-colonial studies, digital humanities, feminism studies, film, television, and media studies, postmodern and contemporary literary studies, and race, ethnicity, and indigeneity. And she doesn't have on her website, but what I know to be true is sports studies as well. Yeah, that's true. Uh, uh, <laughs> Professor Kelp Stebbins' scholarship has been published in, in several edited volumes, including the Oxford Handbook of Comic Book Studies, the comics of Alison Bechdel, Comic Studies Here and Now, and Horrors of War. She has published articles in the journals Studies in Comics, Feminist Media Histories, Media Fields, and Sports in Society. Uh, Professor Kelp Stebbins is also an award-winning teacher, having received a 2022 Tykeson Teaching Award for Excellence in Teaching. And she curated the groundbreaking Art of the News exhibition on comics journalism that was on view at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art in 2021. And she edited both the digital and print versions of the show's impressive exhibition catalog, which is really hefty. And they sell it in JSMA. And I would urge you to at least look at it. It's an amazing uh, uh, book. And it was an incredible exhibit. Uh, today, however, uh, um, Kate Kelp Stebmans will be discussing her monograph, How Comics Travel, Publication, Translation, Radical Literacies, which was published by the Ohio State University Press in March 2022, with the support of an OHC publication subvention grant. Please join me in welcoming Kate Kelp Thank you all. Um, I do want to just begin, because this book is so much a book about places, and the importance of recognizing place, I would like to begin by acknowledging that we are on Kalapuya Ilahi, the traditional and political homelands of the Kalapuya people, um, and that this book was written here as well as on the unceded lands of the Chumash people. Um, and that's a really important thing to me that I have been taking up space that was not given to me in order to write the things. I would also like to thank so many people here, especially the OHC for an incredible subvention for this book, but also people who, if you have not checked, might not know that you are in the acknowledgments of this book because of your incredible contributions to its writing. So I would just thank you again, everyone, for taking your lunch hour to come and listen to me talk as best as I can. I'm going to try to go between reading and extemporaneous speech, and we'll see how that works out for all of us, and feel free to break in at any point in time. So this book really came from a certain kind of rise in the idea of world comics, and in trying to think through what world comics would be. And a lot of previous attempts to define or to understand world comics kind of followed a relatively um, similar schema of often having mostly white Western theorists look out and say, okay, well, what are comics in Africa like? And what are comics in South America like? And so there was this imagination that you already understood the object. And as a comparatist, um, I'm one of the least fun people to have in these sorts of conversations because my question is always, what are we even talking about to begin with? 
And so I started from this question of thinking of world comics not as a preconceived idea, but as a problematic, which is not to say that world comics are problematic, but is to say that we don't even know how to understand what we're talking about until we know which sorts of questions we should be asking. And so my book started to constellate these questions around a certain set of concepts in order to think through what we would even have to begin understanding in order to know world comics as any sort of definable field or canon. And one of the questions would always be translation. How is it that we're translating these works? How do they come to us? What sorts of changes do they go through? Because comics are always already this double semiotic system that's operating in image and textual form at the same time, but not in ways that are somehow dual valence, right? They're not two streams of information that come to you in two ways at the same time. It means that the image and the text signify in communication with each other, which means that when we're translating them, we're always going to be running up against issues not only of linguistic translation, but also of visual translation, cultural translation, and even translation of form. And so then that's the other question. Comics aren't a singular sort of form, certainly not around the world. There are a number of different formal systems, formal traditions, cultural forms of which comics draw from and to which they change and contribute. And so certainly when we're thinking about what world comics is, one of the questions would be, is world comics even an adequate way of describing that form? Are there not different ways to use those terms, terms like manga, like fumetti, like historieta, like komiken? And how do we reconcile all of these different formal traditions? And one way that my book does trace is that we saw around the early aughts this kind of um, emphasis on the graphic novel as this global form, right, that could be used in these sorts of commodity systems that would be translatable among different cultures and cultural traditions. But this was really a commercial endeavor, and it had to do a lot also with the rise of, you know, our long-departed now bookstores that were getting really big at that point in time, and that were also allowing for forms of translation and transnational exchange to proliferate. And then in the graphic novel, it has its own sorts of pitfalls and trappings, and it, you know, is at once responding to things like what Frankie Moretti studies in terms of the global novel, but it also means that not all comics will be able to become global if they cannot all become graphic novels, if that makes sense. And so my question always is, if I'm looking at a world comic, how did it reach me? And what sorts of translations, what sorts of formal adaptations did it have to go through in order to come into my hands? And how do I read it? And do I read it the same way that it's being read everywhere. And so this then raised the question of print cultures and how there are distribution networks, circuits of influence and exchange and market expectations that are not always already defined and do not circumscribe according to national or even global sorts of borders and boundaries. And so one example of this that I talk about a great deal would just be Persepolis, which is probably one of the best known graphic novels here in the US. 
And yet, of course, is it a graphic novel? Is it known in the U.S.? How is it known? This was a work that a lot of people took to be an Iranian or Persian text, and it's often classed in Middle Eastern literature, which is ironic because, of course, Persepolis was never published officially in Iran. In fact, it originates in this French alternative comics tradition, alternative fun destiny tradition, and first gets published by La Sociación in Paris in 2000. When it's being published by Wired by Pantheon here in the United States, it's after 9-11. And so one of the big things that you see in terms of how Persepolis was first marketed and sold in France, and then was remarketed and sold in the U.S., is this negotiation of the fear of what the Middle East might signify at that point in time. So again, there are questions of how are we getting these sorts of books, and how do they how do they come to us, and then and then how do we even study one of them? In many in many ways, many studies in the U.S. both benefits from and suffers from its education with literary studies. And so and so throughout this book, I'm asking questions from literary studies, and also asking questions from visual culture, from media studies, from from economics, from sociology, from anthropology. And so so I try to try to do with stop stop a certain certain kind of methodology. And I call that call that methodology reading for distance, which is which is rather than insisting that comics are intelligible identically everywhere, world world comics insist on untranslatability, cultural specificity, formal formal commercial commercial difference, and and a lot of this idea idea more literature which to do its job properly must be willing to abandon inclusionary and habits. I'm ready to interpret cultural narratives symptomatically as fragments that bear clues, often indirect, reversed, prejudiced to a history of ideological solutions. So this book, thinking about how comics travel is a geographical concern, insofar as the question processes by which everyone's conscious moves across national borders, and what happens when they become entangled different different markets and readerships. More conceptually, the study studies in books travel between theoretical ways of reading the world and to practices of reading the world. My subtitle titles layers paradoxes that turns to work in concert to delimit limit to expand to challenge and to interrogate comics. Publication and translation are both a Factor into the integral appraisal of world comics and 
been, for example, the reception of Marshall's Atrocities for Persepolis, which positions it as both an authentic version of Russian work and an example of the universal appeal of comics. So these are the sorts of questions that I'm going through. And then the chapters all look at different sort of case studies. And they don't really result into specific texts nor authors. They're, again, these constellations in which I'm trying to put into conversation these questions that we might raise. And so I begin with Tintin and thinking about this most global of global comics, Tintin Comics, which, of course, arise in Belgium at a specific interwar point in time, but which then go on to be translated, reproduced, distributed in so many different cultures that many Tintin scholars refer to Tintin comics as truly being a universal language. And, and of course, I decided to apply pressure to that idea and to challenge it, because that's what one does, especially if you're a comparatist, is to ask, what is universality? And so I start from this reading that Scott McCloud gives us of the Lean Claire style, which is really um, emblematic of Tintin comics and developed in Tintin. And so what McLeod says of Lean Claire is this combination of the clear line for characters and the detailed background allows readers to mask themselves in character and safely enter a sensually stimulating world one set of lines to see, another set of lines to be. Unmentioned in this visual calculus is that the transformation of the detailed background into the second panel with the white shape on a black background reduces all lines to one line, the line separating the character from the background, or the line separating white from black, subject from context. The convergence of the lines into a single black-white division correlates to the ambiguity of the parallel textual construction with its mixture of transitive and copulative verbs. Perhaps one set of lines is seen, perhaps it is the means of seeing. Regardless, the being is clear and clearly white. Here, McLeod's reading artfully if uncritically reduces Tintin to binaries, a white subject against a black background. This two-panel example furnishes a lucid illustration of the distinction between reading difference and reading for difference. And as small as this preposition might seem, it distinguishes a practice of consumption, consuming otherness as a reading mode from one of critical inquiry. As McLeod promotes it, Tintin's complex of legibility is, at face value, a mode for training a reader to consume difference as naturalized binaries of seeing and being, subject and background, and black and white. By internalizing these binaries, as mediated through Ling Claire, this entire comic style, the reader in McLeod's formulation is hailed as a reading man, able to see the world and to be in the world through an innocent process of self-identification with white and black lines. Thus, although McLeod does not explicitly address Tintin as a white European colonial hero, his explanation of Lean Claire extends beyond the pages of Tintin to encompass and embrace a worldview of visual imperialism. And so against this particular reading 
I then trace other readings, and I look specifically at the legal case and do a close reading of this entire Belgian court case, which requires a lot of reading Belgian law, which I wouldn't recommend to anyone, <laughs> um, but that was brought forward by Congolese national Bienvenue Mbutu Mondondo, who accused uh, Tintin Okongo, which is the second in the Tintin comic series, of violating Belgian racial bigotry laws. Um, and so I'm reading this as a counter reading, right, a way to challenge that sort of naturalized idea of black-white binaries, subject-object, and that clear-line approach to consuming the world and consuming otherness. And then I conclude by looking at Charles Burns's Détournement um, of Tintin in his comic series, especially ending with Johnny 23, which is this kind of Charles Burroughs-inspired weird comic that exposes Tintin as being precisely that mask by which whiteness conceals its operations of imperial othering. So that's chapter one. And then in chapter two, I look specifically at Egypt's first graphic novel. And this, for all the other comparatives out there, this is the chapter that is definitely the most invested in translation. So looking at Metro, um, which was published in 2008, very briefly, in Egypt. I am specifically questioning how translation in comics works both to domesticate and foreignize and whether those binaries from Lawrence Venuti's theory even work when we're thinking about comics. So in its etymology, the verb translate denotes spatial movement, and it signifies both a placement and a displacement. To carry something across, either from one language to another or from one geographic site to another, engenders a new and uneven relationality between sites. In this chapter, I examine the friction generated in comics translation. More specifically, I look at the divergent transnational editions of Majdi al-Shafi's Metro that proliferated after its banning in Egypt observing how each edition differently interprets the roles and relations of the images, texts, and maps in the graphic novel. These interpretations reveal a great deal about audience expectations, relational geographies, and ways of reading comics. So Metro, when it was um, first published, was really hailed in the West as this great indication of Middle Eastern adult graphic narratives suddenly becoming possible. And there were a number of reasons for this, not the least of which was its attention to realism. And yet, of course, it was its realism that led to its banning, because as many people believed, Metro came a little bit too close to depicting a lot of corrupt figures in Cairo. So when it was released by Egyptian publisher Malameh in 2008, it was banned on its first printing. Officials cited the book for offensive language and sexual content, and El Shafi, the author, and his publishers were arrested and fined. So as soon as this happened, the police also ordered booksellers to deny all knowledge of the book and delete any relevant data from their computers. These, stipulated, these stipulations resulted in the book's unavailability in Egypt for five years. Thus, the work that would be touted as Egypt's first graphic novel spent little time in circulation in Egypt 
outside of Egypt, however, <laughs> Metro was fruitful and multiplied. So you get first in 2008, there's actually a British translation by Humphrey Davies that comes out online. In 2010, Il Sarente publishes a translation by Ernesto Pagano. Um, in 2011, there's a, another version in Arabic that's put out in Lebanon by the comic shop. And then in 2012, the Henry Holt imprint Metropolitan Books puts out an American version translated by Chip Rossetti. And that same year, uh, Edition Moderne in Switzerland publishes a German version translated by Iskander Abdallah and Stefan Finkler. So you have all of these different metros. And they all seem to be kind of directed in the same way. So they're all taken with the idea that Majdi al-Shafi has delivered a prescient portrait of a crumbling society and Egypt's coming eruption, a powerful story of young men with nothing left to lose. Metro sounds the cry for a better, freer future. So you get this really, um, not infantilizing, but certainly slightly derogatory marketing of this book as this brilliant explainer to the West of what the Arab Spring was all about, right? And in fact, the American agent who published, um, who was responsible for getting Metro published in America said that he waited until after Mubarak was ousted to actually publish this because it, it was something that he felt would be that much more sellable at that moment in time. So throughout you have all of these indications of how these European and US countries are marketing, you know, Metro as this thing that is forbidden in Egypt that cannot be seen in the country where it was originally done, but we will see it, we will get it, and it's a graphic novel. So there's this way that Metro's literal and material translatability is facilitated by its untranslatability as a singular object. It is the first Arabic graphic novel. It orients Western consumers as an authentically oriental yet recognizable object, the graphic novel, that because of its condemnation by governmental forces appears to be oriented toward the revolutionary zeitgeist. And you have here in the Ernesto Pagano version, the actual, the tribunal's ruling on why it was banned is the book jacket copy. So this is being used as a selling point again, right? That this is a dangerous book that will tell you a lot that you need to know. <laughs> but one of the things that I really appreciated is that if you look at the translations themselves, what you instead encounter is just a, a completely fragmentary idea of what this book even is. And to give an example, when we look at the different editions in the US, Chip Rossetti's American translation flips all of the pages, which creates just this real disorientation on the reader's part, but it's, it's the way that it's being marketed to an American audience. None of the other versions do this, but they all have other forms of disorientation. So the German edition tells you that they they're keeping the sound words in Arabic for the sake of authenticity, because these sound words are necessary for making um, the book actually more authentic. But of course, one of the questions would be, what is an authentic or a faithful original? Given the state of the work as a banned text, the ability to discern the significatory import of all the markings on the page was not always easy. 
nor was the idea of the original metro necessarily a possible concept for its translators. So I got to talk to Chip Rossetti, and he just <coughs> told me amazing stories about trying to translate this book, saying, quote, it was hard to get a copy that was not a copy of a copy. I would go to book fairs in the Arab world and would desperately look to see if anyone has a copy of El Shafi's Metro. It was a Borgesian book that didn't exist. I really had to ask Majdi himself, I can't read what's here because it's grayed out. I knew there were things where I could see that it wasn't right and I could only see when I finally got the proofs at the end. Majdi was being very careful about what he would send out online. He may not have had the file from Egypt. It may have been stored elsewhere. I had to keep asking, do you have a better resolution of this? I can't see what's on the page. In Rossetti's description of Metro's Borgesian existence, the concept of the original is thrown into doubt. And as former um, professor here, Karen Emmerich, has argued it is in fact translations and later editions that create originals. Rather than derivative copies or lesser versions, translations are interpretive forms that simultaneously indicate the instability of literary originals and create the concept of an original text which they interpret. And so every version deals with especially those sound words that you saw referenced in the German edition in very different ways. So you have a lot of sounds. This is a, an incredibly onomatopoetic text. And so even on the first page you have trains rushing into the station overlaid with all these walls, right? These letters just signifying the sound of the train. You have phones ringing. You have other train sounds, other phones ringing. But every translation decides that there's a different way to do this. And some of these are aesthetic, some of them are linguistic, some of them I don't know what's going on. So this was the Humphreys British version, which basically it is doing a linguistic translation of these letters, yes, by overlaying W's on top of the letters. And yet it keeps the Arabic letters there. So you have this weird polyphony almost occurring in terms of how many letters do you need to signify a train sound? And what is a WWW train sound? I'm not sure. I've tried to make it a lot with my mouth, and it doesn't work right. This here in the German version, as they said, they keep all the sound words in there, but then they put their translation of what they think this sound is, so you have the ratatata also going off the page. So again, there's that emphasis on the sound that the train is making, and yet you have these two streams of sound that are occurring at the same time. Um, this is in the Pagano version, they just do away with the Arabic letters, so you no longer have those there. But again, it's a translation of the letters, right? So this would be, if you were trying to transliterate Arabic, you might do it like this. Whereas in the Rossetti version, you instead have this attempt at making a train sound in English. So again, there's no more of the Arabic letters themselves, but there is the whoosh versus the So all of these are different choices that tell us what these translators are privileging in terms of how they imagine what the letters, the images, and the sounds that are being brought together in these panels are doing and what deserves the most attention. 
And so I think you see again here the kinds of questions that we need to ask about what we think audiences are reading and how comics signify in these multivocal and multivalent ways, both visually, literally, and in this case, with the attempt at sound. So in the next chapter, oh, and that's just all, all of the attempts all put together for your comparative pleasure. Um, very different ways of dealing with the sound of a train coming. In the next chapter, I look specifically at Persepolis, which I've mentioned, in terms of how it was marketed. And I had the pleasure of speaking a great deal to Anjali Singh, who was the acquisitions editor at Pantheon, who acquired Persepolis for Pantheon. And she told me a lot about the sorts of battles that she had to go through at the time, just arguing that there was an audience there for a book about a woman of color who was raised in Tehran or near Tehran. And so one of the things she also talked about were the sorts of formatting and visual translations that were made to Persepolis from its French publication to its U.S. publication. And these were really fascinating, both for the ways in which they changed the sort of marketing and indicated certain audience expectations, right? So that in France, you had the ability of audiences to read four volumes that are all pretty slim in serialized form and to have them be titled only in de trois quatre and you know, consume these with a certain legibility and familiarity for what they meant culturally. Whereas in the US, what you had instead was this kind of this two volume set that was marketed in a way that again speaks to a certain kind of universal innocence, right? It's the story of a childhood that became the breakout hit of graphic novels here and that was definitely far more acceptable after 9-11 as a kind of marketing term and as a subtitle. But I watched so many comics theorists make a lot out of that subtitle, the story of a childhood, and what it means for the style, for the book, never realizing that this was a way post facto edition that was made by Anjali Singh herself. This was not actually part of the book when it was published in France. This is in fact you know, an edition made at Pantheon and at that level of publication. So this was, again, one of the things that really struck me. And then from a comics formalism perspective, another thing to note is that even the trim sizes were different. And so the French version is larger in its very trim size than the US version, which necessitates that these banned titles that happen at the start of every vignette are truncated. And just visually, you can see there's a real difference in terms of that sequence versus surface tension, where you have the full band leading across the page and really introducing and framing it versus this little band that's over to the side. So that's what I mostly follow in my third chapter. And then my fourth chapter is really special to me because the artist is just one of my heroes and someone who's been incredibly kind to me in my research. So I'm gonna try to read this as well as I can. But in my fourth chapter, I'm looking specifically at the art of Michael Nicolaiakalanis, who is a Haida artist who works in a number of different media. But for my purposes, he is most well known for his Haida manga. 
Um, and these are some of the Haida manga that he has published, A Tale of Two Shamans, The Last Voyage of the Black Ship, War of the Blank, Red, and Carpe Finn. Yakolanis's terminology, Haida manga, is intentional and situates his work outside nomination as either comics or bandesine. By identifying his work according to Japanese image text naming conventions, Yakolanis's Haida manga has become almost synonymous with cultural hybridity. However, such a description relies on each term, haida and manga, in syntagmatic conjunction as the literal rationale for such an interpretation. Rather than approach haida manga as a seamless or even paratactically aligned hybrid, I argue that Yakolanis's work can and should be read for how it cultivates cultural difference as technical practice in relation not only to Western and Eastern economies of comics, but also in relation to indigenous and settler colonial cultural formations in Canada. As anthropologist and museologist Nicola Lavelle asserts, through his creative mix or creolization, Haida manga has emerged as a vibrant visual idiom for retelling indigenous oral histories and other narratives, and for offering different ways of seeing and knowing cultural complexes. Haida manga describes a relation between culture, haida, and object, manga, combining two different linguistic systems, the dichotomous coupling of two linguistically and geographically distinct words, gestures toward their irreducible difference while positing their combinatory power as an epistemological intervention into naming, geography, art, and commerce. No mere synthesis of two cultures, Yakolanis's Haida manga forces a rethinking of how the relationship between terminology, form, and sites of production allow us to theorize what makes Haida manga Haida and what makes Haida manga manga. So as a form of cultural semiosis, to claim the power to name his practice according to his own affiliations, Yakulanis claims for himself the power that the colonizer has long held over social semiotic relations and toponymic systems, just as his home of Haida Gwaii was long referred to by the Canadian government as the Queen Charlotte Islands until native sovereignty and resistance movements forced the recognition both of the name for the place and the Haida Gwaii Reconciliation Act, a process that Yakolanis took part in and documents in his work and was arrested for um, at least once. As an act of indigenous sovereignty, the power to name is its own form of intervention and anti-colonial endeavor. But I contend that Haida Manga does not merely name a product. It names a place, joining together sites of artistic practice through the medium of water that fills Yakolanis's stories structures his comics and determines his objects. By prioritizing the Pacific, Yakulanis remaps Haida artistic production outside colonial paradigms of land-based cartography, and thus uses Haida manga to challenge what Seneca scholar Mishwana Goman calls, quote, culturally situated spatial epistemologies and the realities they produce. Implicated in every aspect of Yakolanis's work is the destabilization of land as the sole form of territoriality and cultural production in favor of a watery trans-Pacific concept of borders and belonging. As Yakolanis suggests, the Haida partake of cultural and aesthetic practices that mobilize water as both medium and meaningful space 
And so again, he's working with watercolor. It's actually the basis of his art. But water is also where the Haidas cite their origin. And it is likewise their land and their place where they fish, where they live, and where they dwell, and which they have fought hard to retain sovereignty over or to regain sovereignty over. And so there's this way that by thinking Haida Manga, you unthink that colonial grid that allows us to partition places like the American, the Americas, and the North American continent. More than a culturally hybrid term, I read Yakolanis's Haida Manga formally and semantically as a map of water. Yakolanis remaps Japan as a place directly connected to Haida Gwaii just as much as Haida Gwaii might be connected to Ottawa. Eschewing colonial borders of national demarcation, Yakolanis suggests alternate configurations that do not discount the role of the ocean in placemaking. Yakolanis's epistemological intervention is reflected not only in the terminology used to describe the work, but also in its formal attributes. Most evidently, Haida Manga design features no orthogonal gridding and acts as a rebuke to colonial knowledge systems and falsehoods about the emptiness of indigenous land. For example, here in Yakalanis's book, Red, you can see that the panels themselves are composed through a series of pages segmented by Haida frame lines into panels of curving connectivity. These panels eschew expected rectangular partitioning in favor of Haida line work, posing a rebuke to colonial knowledge systems, whereby the whiteness of the comic's gutter suggests a vacuum or void of space-time in between the moments of the panels metonymically recalling the terra nullius of settler colonial imagination. And this is something that he and I have talked about a lot, and he actually drew this comic in the gutter, explaining why he has this problem with gutters as they have been so uh, fetishized in American comic theory. As Yakalanis says, the gutter is that white space formed by the margins between panels on a page. And Scott McCloud in Reinventing Comics says the empty space is the important stuff. But as Yakolanis contends, gutters are like terra nullius, beloved by colonizers, because empty land means my land. And this is something that he's also talked about in terms of Haidamanga as a pushback against the notion of gutters, which reflects this false idea that when settler populations fled the oppression of Europe and were desperate to find something else, they imagined this place to be empty because they needed it to be empty. And so you see as a Haida artwork, there's this way that even the borders themselves are rebuking these colonial, settler colonial ways of bordering, demarcating, and creating systems of space. As a Haida artwork, the frame lines of red, and this is just one example, this is true of all of his Haida um, artworks, his Haida manga, the frame lines of red actually produce an entire composite image of three interlocking figures. Yet, as a manga, the frame lines designate the differences between panels that allow for a narrative to take place. So at the level of the page, frame lines expose the oft-overlooked techniques of the observer by challenging the naturalization of gridding and z-path reading practices. Yet the frame lines go beyond the page. Red, War of the Blink, and Carpe Fin are books. Uh, I think I brought red here. Sorry. 
so these are both books and they're also murals or vice versa. Um, and each work has a life as an installation as well as a commodity object. War of the Blank and Red were displayed at the Vancouver Art Museum um, in 2006 and 2009, respectively. And Carpe Finn was actually commissioned by the Seattle Art Museum, and I recommend going to see it, and has hung there since 2018. So Yakulana says, murals come books radically remap the reading practices of graphic narrative. If comics are already understood as a hybrid of words and images, Yakulonis's works compel an even more historically and culturally located inquiry beyond the conceptualization of meaningful gaps between panels and what Hilary Shute calls the often disjunctive back and forth of reading and looking for meaning. Red, War of the Blink, and Carpe Finn problematize this formal conception of graphic narrative by insisting on the material and locative components of these gaps and disjunctures. They likewise introduce material techniques and objects to resist and reimagine both the artwork and the book as they have been developed as tools for longstanding imperial domination and indigenous suppression. And in fact, at the end of Red, which is really stunning in its full form, um, Yakulanis includes this address to the reader, which my students really enjoy, um, because as it says, read is more than a collection of bound pages, something more than a story to be read page by page. Read is also a complex of images, a composite, one that will defy your ability to experience story as a simple progression of events. Turn the page to see the entire work. I welcome you to destroy this book. I welcome you to rip the pages out of their bindings. Following the layout provided overleaf and using the pages from two copies of this book, you can reconstruct this work of art. Haida Manga thus mobilizes border thinking for the project of spatial decolonization, implicating in the process a wide swath of encounters between peoples, cultural techniques, nomenclatures, spatial demarcations, and commodity objects. Highlighting points of untranslatability as well as unequal encounters, these works allow us to, in the words of Goman, think beyond the ontologization of an area to be studied and move to a reflection on the historicity of differences. And so I will also mention that my final chapter looks at Semendal, a trilingual Lebanese um, comics magazine, but I would really like to end there and open it up to comments and discussion. <laughs> Questions for Kate? Well, I have always too many questions to ask you, so I think I'll yield to Professor Saunders, who I know has better ones than I do. Hope you don't put me on the spot or anything. Um, actually, I did have a, so first of all, I just want to say, um, I'm so glad you're here. Um, really, um, uh, a, uh, uh, a reminder of um, uh, the the kind of work that got us excited about having you here in the first place, and um, and I'm just glad that more now a lot of other people are going to be able to get to see it through the book. Um, I have uh, I'm also was well, as you were talking, and I was reminded of so many things. I was like, God, there are so many things that we still haven't talked about, <laughs> um, and. Uh, 
I guess I, I'm going to ask a, a, a pedagogy question, partly because that, that's um, some of what you were talking about was inevitably reminding me of, of um, um, challenges in teaching um, what are in some cases more traditional literatures where we also sort of, uh, where criticism perhaps belatedly discovers the proliferation of textual variants. I was just trying to teach some Blake yesterday, for example. And who would have been a graphic novelist if he was around? Yes. No, no doubt in my mind about that. Um, and um, how there's an older critical tradition where you could just extract um, the texts out of the, the illuminated books and set them in type and give them to people and not worry about the, how they were originally presented. And then we changed our minds about this. Um, and this is partly a function of uh, cheaper um, color print technology making it possible for us to put variations, put the illuminated books yeah. in front of somebody. But then we realize that oh, every single one of these, you know, is actually different. They're all colored slightly differently. Um, and what I found in the classroom is um, you can spend 45 minutes talking about five versions of one page. Um, and that can be a good thing. Um, but it's also um, an awful lot of class time that ends up, you know, I mean, I guess wondering how, <laughs> how you, um, uh, uh, you have the space of a book, you have the presumption of a, of a differently invested audience. How does presenting, teaching something like Metro, for, for example, yep. how, how do you change what you do in order to make it work in the classroom? I mean, I think one of the things to recognize is that, especially in a classroom space, but even for the majority of readers, they're only ever getting one. And right. so what you have to do isn't so much present <coughs> all of them, so much as at least make you know your readers, your students aware of the existence of other possibilities. Because it's that awareness that then leads to critical inquiry. It's that awareness that then starts that why brain going. And then you ask, why? Why do I have this version? And what other versions don't I have? And why don't I have them? Like, why is this the version that I hold? Why is this the version that's sold to me or that I stole or I don't know, however I came upon what it is that I have? And so I think that really the more important thing isn't so much trying to force my students to understand what sound words means in German, which I'm not sure I quite understand either, in a comics context, and more allowing them to recognize that there are always choices being made. And that rather than assuming that history is somehow inevitable, to recognize it as a series of possibilities that at any point in time are conditioned by material practices, by constraints, limitations, economic forces, linguistic forces, and that that's, you know, informing what they have. And just to remind them that it is not a kind of monolith, it can be otherwise, and to hope that they will imagine a better otherwise no, for the future. Brilliant, actually. Uh, you, you, get to, you just have to get them to us the question. You don't have to give them all the answers. I need to remember Yes. <laughs> Can I ask a follow-up about that yeah. specifically about Metro and your why brain? Um, so the American version flips why? This uh -huh. is, so I actually talked to Chip about this yeah. and um, I could not get Riva, the, um, the editor at 
Metropolitan to answer my inquiries. But what Chip felt was that they thought they couldn't sell it um, because they weren't going to be selling it to manga readers. They were going to be selling it to highbrow American readers who like Persepolis. And that was their kind of precedent for Metro. And so they didn't feel that they could convince enough people for whom it would be so foreign to flip a book in order to read it, that that would be kind of just a step too far, Mm -hmm. that they're already selling this thing that's going to be a hard sell because it's Egyptian, it's never been done before, it's brand new. And so what they would have to do is at least facilitate in, you know, the best way that they could their entry into the text. And you don't see that in any of the other editions. And so, you know, I think it is something to question that that assumption about American readers. And it was certainly something Chip and I talked about. There were a lot of other changes made to the American edition. There were things that were excised. There were things that were Mm -hmm. censored Mm -hmm. and things that were taken out, again, because of what I... I took to be, in my own personal opinion, and this isn't in the book, um, but really, a, you know, a lack of faith on the part of American readers to engage with objects that might challenge them. A lack of faith in American yeah, readers. Yeah, a lack of faith mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. American readers. And I, again, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. There are always possibilities that maybe their printing wouldn't have done well by that. Um, and I don't, again, have a way to answer that. But that was what seemed to be the mm-hmm. case, was this idea that people will buy foreign, but they won't buy so foreign. Mm-hmm. And if we make an object that is difficult for them even to hold, that that might be a challenge that would affect the market and affect the sales. But manga, no problem. I mean, again, manga already has its, you know, Not initially, its toehold. No. Yeah. When, when manga was first being sold in the U.S., it was it was flipped. It, it was it was a fan, really fan-based um, desire to see it closer. But you could have learned from that lesson that you didn't need to do that. Sure, but manga has its own section in a bookstore. Whereas, where would you put Metro? I can actually, this is a kind of terrible anecdote, but um, Metro was really long delayed for the reason I said. It was delayed by about three years in its publication here. And I was going into every comic book store, not like Chip Rossetti, but I was asking people, it was like, look, do you know when this will be published? Can you at least get me a published date? And I remember being in Challengers Comics in Chicago, and I was talking to the guy who had just been having one of those great comic book, you know, Iron Man versus Captain America, like, (laughs) sorts of conversations. And the very nice gentleman at the counter started looking up when I started asking. I was like, it's an Egyptian comic by, the author is Majdiel Shafi. It was originally published in 2008. I think it's being translated by Metropolitan, but I know it's a prominent bookseller. Do you know when it will come out? And the man, the gentleman he'd been talking to turned to me and said, you're thinking of Persepolis. (laughs) And that, like, that's what, again, so to answer your question, that I think was the level at which Metropolitan assumed they were operating when they were trying to 
publish this. And so, likewise, I think that was... It's good that he was there. Yeah, I really, I so appreciate (laughs) Gentlemen in comic book stores are generally just really helpful for me. (laughs) Yes, Fabian. Uh, Thank you so much, Kate. It's a a brilliant contribution to the field. Um, And you gave just a beautiful synthesis of it all. I just wrote the arc of the book, you know, from Tantan to... And I had an epiphany when I saw this work in Seattle it is just amazing. One has to see it to understand what it does to your to literacy. You know how is it to read uh, something that certainly is a fresco uh, or a mural. Um, there are different ways of describing. So I would love for him to come to the University of Oregon <laughs> and be exhibited in our museum. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> so my question is about uh, what about the traveling of his work? Has it been translated? Uh, is it circulating uh, in other languages uh, or is it just in anglophone uh, sort of spaces? Um, and then my sort of second question is about, because right now the International Festival of Angoulême is taking place, uh, and Angoulême in France has just attributed its first prize for the life achievement life work of Riyad Satouf, who is one interesting example that I think could be in a sequel to yes, your yes. book, yeah. uh, because the Arab of the future, or l'Arab du futur, is this unbelievable commercial success, mm. to the point that uh, Riyad Satouf has even... Um, put together his own uh, press, right? Mm. Her, his own publishing house to have that independence. So I'm just curious about your take on that particular prize this year and Riyad Satouf's work, uh, but also on the um, traveling of his uh, his work. Well, and of course, Satouf is also just such an important figure because he was really the only not, you know, not totally white member of Charlie Hebdo. And so also had this role at the moment of the Charlie Hebdo massacre of often being tapped as the token, you know, like spokesperson to speak out to whether Charlie Hebdo was or was not racist because they wanted, you know, since he has this dual heritage for him to have to kind of take on that responsibility. And I do, I mean, I love, my students do not love Arab of the future, but I teach it all the time because I love it and I think it's so beautifully done and such a perfect example of that question of how comics travel and the question of, you know, his own background forming this sort of question of belonging always. And then you have these comics that even in France, where do they belong? Like, how are they being read? Like, he is a French citizen and yet they're so often being classed as Middle Eastern lit, which is just, you'll see it even in like beauty shops where you're like, no, this is published right here. Like, this was published there. Like, why are you putting this as if it is a foreign work? And certainly in the US, there's been always the classification of Satouf as, you know, a Middle Eastern artist, which I think speaks to the sorts of questions that I'm always trying to ask, which is how, you know, how do these author functions? which are so new to comics in some ways. How are they working, and are they working the same way that the author function, as Foucault describes it, works for literature, right? Do they sort things and classify them, or are there almost toponymic functions that are happening for that? So I'm really happy, again, I love Satouf, I'm so glad that he won the Angolan Prize. Um, And when it comes to Yakulanis' work, 
his work has been translated into multiple different languages and he's actually done a number of collaborations. He worked in Japan for a while and did a number of haida manga in Japanese um, with him doing the artwork and then another art author writing the text. And he's asked and been questioned as to why if this is manga, it reads from left to right. And the way that he said this, that I wish I could do his words exactly, but his explanation was that he's writing it for people in his, like in North America, to rethink the way that they understand the world. And so the reason that it's written in English and going, you know, in an in English rather than a manga directionality has to do with the intended audience that he has for this work and the way that he needs them to be aware of these connections and the possibility for relating to each other that he feels his work can open up for others. And so there is, like, that's been a question of his work is why, why in English and why in this particular way and it has been translated. He just, in fact, did a work in Berlin on commission. That's another like huge relief that was just put up. But one of the things he's also said is that his goal is to be able to do away with the page as its own form of orthogonal demarcation. And so he's been working with this Japanese sycamore bark-like scroll to try and finally do away with, like, those barriers and those gutters that we have between each other. So I know that doesn't exactly answer, but it, you know that's you. one of the things he's doing. Well, like Professor Moore, I was enchanted by the Haida manga artists, mostly because of the gutter work, yeah. so to speak. And the reason for that is we traditionally see the gutters, as you know, uh, as square boxes. Yeah and everything is at right angles. And I, I just was impressed by how he functions as an artist because an artist is always interested in changing, altering our way of seeing the world. And that is, I think, seminal so that questions about how noises translate or how we read from left to right, to me, are almost secondary to this way of seeing the world. When I first saw his work, you know, exhibited in your slide, I thought, you know, that's more like how I see through my lenses. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm actually so happy that you said that. That's, um, so this type of art, which is so beloved, the the lines here, um, which you can see in so many Haida art forms, uh, carving by Charles Edenshaw, um, and it was so beloved by people like Levi Strauss as just this perfect indication of Northwest Pacific art. But it was originally the study of this particular art was codified by Bill Holm, who was a white kind of settler art theorist, and he called these lines form lines and made an entire study of Northwest um, Pacific art looking at how form lines are used and really creating a terminology and a taxonomy of every part of form line artwork. 
And Michael Nikolakalanis rejects that very term because he says a form line presumes that there is something already set and made within the form. A form presumes a certain kind of madeness. And I call mine frame lines because instead it allows for a way into something else, much like the glasses that you are looking through. And so I think you would love that idea that you're seeing through these lines rather than imagining them as giving some sort of set space to the object and that they are forms to him of showing the expansion and contraction that occurs among all space and among all people, which are always full. Mark? Uh, yeah, so I just wanted to say thank you again for presenting this work. This feels like a real celebration of the book as well, and um, it's, uh, it's just such an amazing uh, project and, and, and really great to get to see some of the less well-known uh, uh, work that you've presented today. My questions, I guess, are a slightly different scale. Um, you know, obviously, you know, I work in modernist studies and the sort of methodologies of looking about, looking at how cultural artifacts travel has been really central to modernist studies, um, beginning with magazines. Um, but I think one of the interesting differences is that in the early 20th century, there weren't those huge publishing conglomerates which were which are multinational or global in scope, you know, like Hachette or Penguin or um, HarperCollins. So I really wanted to ask if you had any kind of general reflections about how how this works at the level of cultural economy. Is this tending to happen in smaller presses that are still kind of national in scope? And how are those big um, multinational um, publishing conglomerates working with the kind of um, you know, nationally specific context that you mentioned, do they have different? Do they do they get involved in this in this medium to a great degree? Do they publish different versions for different national contexts? How do they? How do that? How, how, you know. So how does the the kind of economy of publishing work um, with um, the kind of very different registers of how these texts appear in different in different countries? Yeah, and it's. I mean, that's a brilliant question that I think speaks. I, it's something that comes up really in every chapter in different ways. Um, and one of the things to remember, like in the Tencent chapter, is that you have with Tencent really that inception of the kind of hardcover, the, the comic as object, and as the album as the form for that object. And it's, it existed previously. There were some Vicassine albums that exist before Tintin starts publishing the book versions, but it's really that Tintin that popularizes the the valuable object, the book version of what was otherwise, as you're saying, ephemera. And so, so many comics that, you know, we have, we have only thanks to a lot of hoarders who kept things that probably should have been thrown away at some point in time. But you do have, one of the things that I look at are the differentials for that possibility of the object and its circulation and its preservation, or in the case of Tintin, also its revision. Because if you have a book, you can revise the book over time and take out things that are historically inappropriate or very, very racist, um, especially when it comes to anti-Semitism. But if you know it's ephemeral, you don't have that same sort of set original or the sense of the original. 
And so you have the development that really comes into play with books like Mouse of the possibility of that also being something in the United States. And that's really because Mouse was published by Pantheon um, back when Sunny Meta was still the EIC. And there was this imagining of what Pantheon could be doing. And there was an entire group of people that were very interested. Chip Kidd was the designer at that time for a lot of Pantheon books. So it was really certain booksellers imagining a future for comics as graphic novels here in the U.S. that kind of dovetailed with the rise of certain alternative smaller presses like Fantagraphics, like Dark Horse, like Oni, um, Drawn in Quarterly, and in fact many of them use each other for distribution. So like Fantagraphics, which is a really important, amazing, small comics publisher up in Washington, they distribute through Norton. And Norton is now actually, I think, are they Bertelsmann or they're another multinational? Are so, they? Oh my goodness! Like, but they used to brag to me that they were Pantheon's Bertelsmann though now, right? So mm-hmm. like, so many because Pantheon was Knopf and now Knopf is AG, I think. So like, at any point in time, you're also talking about these shifting monopolies of book production, and so certainly with your question, um, there were like. There used to be a division between certain U.S. versions and then there would be British and Canadian versions put out by Jonathan Cape, right, which was an imprint. And now those are often, they're just the exact same book. So there's not even a different editor. And meanwhile, these are all being printed in places mostly like Malaysia, Hong Kong. Um, And so you have these real transnational networks that are occurring. And what it says on the cover of your book will often just be based on the whims of the market and how a specific publisher has decided to delimit their distribution areas. 